Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In human affairs, it is always important to document our statements. With something promised, make sure to find the original email. Did something problematic come up in a discussion thread? Save the chat log. Did someone go on the record during a meeting? If there is no recording, be sure to take notes because hereafter there will be an accounting for every word we mumble. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 59 to 64. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 405 of the Bible as Literature podcast. People get excited about silence in religion, and it's silly. Well, let me put it this way. It has nothing to do with Scripture. It's interesting because people are overloaded with technology So now there are lots of, ironically, meditation apps. I don't know how you meditate with an app, Richard, but that's another discussion. In any case, they come to this section of Matthew, and they see that Jesus kept silent, and they think, oh, Jesus is turning to the inner life and centering himself before these violent men. They come up with all kinds of explanations about why Jesus isn't speaking, except the obvious one that every middle schooler knows. That when you want to defy the teacher, and the teacher asks you a question, you don't give an answer. Why? Because why should I answer you? I don't answer to you. That's how a seventh grader answers their teacher. None of your business. I don't have to answer to you. Which means that the silence of Jesus is a kind of defiance that reflects submission to his Father. And that's the difference between social justice, which is rebellion, and scriptural submission which still pushes back against tyranny, but not as rebellion. Jesus is following his Father's rule, and as such, under the omophore of his dad, is free to defy the human court, but he's still subject to it. This is what slavery to God looks like in the wilderness. 
This is what freedom from Pharaoh as a slave to God in the wilderness looks like. So Jesus is not free. He's still taking orders. But as one who is not free, he is free not to answer the high priest. It's beautiful. That all has to be in place for Jesus to continue to function as teacher. In the past few chapters, no matter how bad things got, Jesus never let up on his commission, his calling to be a teacher. When a bunch of people are spouting nonsense, he is quiet, because what's he going to teach in that instance? And once they become quiet, then he begins to teach again. And this is Jesus's only M.O., People think about the miracles, no, 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 and I remember I've had lots of conversations with people. Do you think he did the miracles? Isn't it amazing he did the miracles? What is it about the miracles? And my point is always the miracles are used to teach. Jesus doesn't go by, wave a magic wand, someone is healed, he says, have a good day. He doesn't do that. Every time anything happens, he uses it as an opportunity to teach, because Matthew is using his book to teach. I mean, for heaven's sake, people want to talk about all the miracles of Jesus, but the main thing that he did was the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, a three-chapter monologue that lays out everything. This is what Jesus did. Jesus taught, and he doesn't let up just because he's in court, just because he's facing the death penalty. He continues to teach. So when he opens his mouth, it's only to teach. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. There are two interesting features in these three verses, Richard, that I want to point out. Number one, why would Matthew mention that many people came forward to bear false witness, but the chief priests couldn't find anything? How is it that people came forward, but they couldn't find anything? Is Matthew implying that they couldn't find anything interesting or useful? It's odd, since we know they're looking for something that's not true. What does it mean to find something? To find something juicy? To find something that might be effective in their smear campaign against Jesus? And then, you and I were talking before the program this morning, and we both noticed that what actually surfaced this accusation that Jesus claimed to be able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, a phrase which is often theologized, doesn't occur anywhere in Matthew. This is the first time we hear it because it's a false accusation. Jesus didn't say it in Matthew. So the question then is, why did Matthew choose this false accusation. And why mention that the chief priests were sifting through other false accusations and couldn't find any of value? What's going on here? Yeah, it's that sifting process. Obviously, they're trying to sift. They even say that they were looking for false witnesses so they could put him to death. So they already had the punishment 
Now they needed the guilty verdict, but in order to get the guilty verdict, they needed to get the correct witnesses. So it's very strange, and you see this a lot of times. People want to follow the process for the sake of following the process. I mean, why not just kill the guy? But no, they want to follow the process. But the only way they can follow the process is by finding a couple of liars. But the problem is you get a bunch of false witnesses together, and they don't agree with each other. Shoot, they're useless. Or the stuff they say isn't actually going to lead to a death penalty. Shoot, you can't use them either. So you have to find two that agree on the same thing, first of all. And number two, that same thing has to be something that will merit death. Now, what really struck me here is that they needed two such witnesses. When I read it, I think of how you need two to three witnesses in order to make something so. That is from Torah. So as being chief priests, they had to know Roman law because they had to follow it. But they also had to know Jewish law so that they could teach it and follow it. So they surely knew that this was part of Torah. So in order to end with the death penalty, they needed to have two witnesses. It wasn't enough to have one. It wasn't even enough for the chief priest to say, I don't like this guy. We got to off him. That's not enough either. For some reason, he feels that he must follow process. He must be just but he's going to be just by corrupting the system and then saying, well, what was I supposed to do? These guys said he was going to do these things, and I have no choice. My hands are tied. But he actively set things up so that it would inevitably end with Jesus' crucifixion. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? I used the example of someone in middle school defying their teacher, and it's not exactly a correct analogy, but it expresses the dynamic of defiance. Because a seventh grader is responsible to answer his or her teacher. Jesus is subject to the human court because of the will of his father, but he's not subject to answer to the chief priest. So there's a difference. But the example expresses the way in which your submission to God the Father allows for defiance in the event horizon of martyrdom. But it's a defiance that is governed by submission. So there's no ego in your defiance because you're under control. It's much different than this self-righteous, self-referential, speak-truth-to-power nonsense. Jesus is not here to speak truth to power. And that's why the example I gave sits so comfortably and fits so well with your point about Jesus waiting for the opportune moment, the keros, to teach what his father assigned for him to teach. So he's not speaking truth to power, as we would as activists with an ideological agenda. He is submitting to a greater power and then relaying the instruction that pertains to the greater power. So he is, in fact, an ambassador of the coming kingdom who is sent ahead before the battle and will be executed by the opposing army. And the Romans and the Sanhedrin will send his body back to the army of God the Father in a body bag. 
and then we'll see what's going to happen on the last day. That's how you have to understand this scene. Jesus is the message that God the Father is sending to the human court. And they're going to send a message back, and the message will not be left without a response. And that is the hope of the coming kingdom. But to really understand what's going on, you have to understand the battlefield. You have to think back to that old film, Braveheart, that came out when we were in school, Richard, and the way in which the nobility would have a discussion on the battlefield. I mean, there's a zillion examples of this in film and in books. You extend an olive branch. I sent my son to you. I mean, we have parables like this in Matthew. I sent my son to you, and you sent him back to me in a body bag? We all know what happens next. That's the idea. But in this situation, Jesus doesn't have to answer. He has only, as you pointed out, Rich, to deliver the teaching, to deliver the message that the king is sending through him. It's beautiful. This reminds me of that scene in Ezekiel when all the elders come to Ezekiel and start asking him questions about the Lord. And the Lord gets angry and says, are they going to seek me? Are they seeking out me? I am going to seek out them. And the question here is, who is examining whom? The high priest on his authority stands up so that Jesus will answer him because he's going to seek out the truth, the true teaching by persecuting Jesus. Jesus answers to no one except his father. So if the chief priest wants to ask him these questions, then he'll respond in so much as he must. Insofar as he must. He's not here to win points for himself. He's not here for a sick burn against the chief priest. That's not what he's here to do. I mean, that's the funny thing, is a lot of people think they're doing the work of the gospel, and they get a sick burn against an atheist, and they think they did something. They create a meme that insults an atheist. They think they did something. But Jesus, even when his life is on the line, he's here just to teach. And consistently that's what he's here to do for. So all the people who think that Jesus is the miracle maker, all these different popular images of who Jesus is, Jesus teaches even when his life is on the line. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is going on the record. My Father sent me as his ambassador, as his peace offering. He's extending an olive branch on the field of battle. I delivered his message to you. I came here on foot. Here's the deal. I have now delivered the gospel. Not only does the Archierevs here bear witness, but this is in the presence of the nations. You've all heard it. I preached it openly in the temple, and I'm going to deliver it to the Romans. I am his emissary. I am bringing the Torah to the Gentiles. I am doing it in spite of you. And you now have gone on the record, and it's going to be written for all time, that you have admitted 
just as interestingly enough, the pillars, Peter, James, and John, whom Paul refers to as the ministers of Satan in 2 Corinthians, go on the record in Acts as accepting the gospel to the nations, the Torah to the Gentiles. Here, too, the high priest is admitting that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is going on the record that Jesus is the Messiah. You have said so. Which means that when the teaching of Ezekiel is filled with the power of the Spirit, it's fulfilled. And you see the impossible. You see the Son of Man enthroned at the right hand of power, riding upon the clouds in the coming kingdom, you will have no excuse. When my body gets sent back in a body bag and my father raises me in power and I come in judgment on that day, you will have no excuse. And you will have nowhere to hide and you will be given no quarter. Because this is your last chance and you yourself have confessed that I am the emissary of my father who is our king and our emperor and our patriarch and our supreme patrician, the father of fathers. And you are going to hand me over to be crucified. It's reminiscent of when the FBI used to spy on Dr. King and they would put a tape recorder in the podium and he would discover the tape recorder, Richard, and he would take it out and he'd show it to the community and say, oh, look, let me put this up on top of the podium so that we can make sure they get the message clearly. (laughs) For the record, let me preach the gospel for the FBI. That is the freedom and the courage of being a slave to God the Father, because you're not afraid. You have submitted to his will. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they say. You're just here to do the business of teaching and preaching unto the event horizon of execution. This is what a free man looks like. For all of our American listeners who are obsessed with freedom and don't know what it is, have never tasted it, and will spend the rest of their life chasing it while they're looking into the abyss of their iPhone screen. That image of Dr. King is beautiful because of precisely what you were saying. If I'm going to teach, I'm going to shout it to the rooftops. And if I'm going to preach, let the FBI hear. And if Jesus is going to teach, let him teach the high priest and all the false witnesses. Now, one of the things I always found kind of odd about this whole section is Peter is lurking in the background. And I always thought that was kind of strange. Why is he lurking? Why is it Peter? And what's he doing? What's the purpose? But then when I hear the high priest, that he adjures him by the living God, whether you are the Christ, the son of God, son of the living God, kind of sounds like Peter's admission or proclamation of who he thought Jesus was right before he denied the crucifixion and was called the Satan. And now Peter is hearing something very close to his own words, his own profession, coming from the mouth of the high priest who says, are you? Because Jesus never says that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't answer Peter in that way. 
but now the high priest is telling him he must. And significantly, when the chief priest stood up, Jesus didn't answer, but when the high priest adjured him by the living God, then he did speak, because there's one to whom Jesus responds, and that's his God, his Father. So he does respond, but whether he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, just like Peter, he says, you said so. I bear witness that you said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, or at least the thought crossed your mind. I don't have anything to do with that. Nevertheless, I'm going to take an opportunity to preach here for a moment. You're going to see the Son of Man, the Son of Man, not the Son of God. Interesting. Are those interchangeable, or is Jesus making a point? Well, I think Jesus is making a point, because you mentioned Ezekiel a moment ago, Father, and it sounds like he's going to be riding shotgun on the big chariot. It sounds like he's going to be on that throne next to his father on the chariot. He is going to be part of that image as the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is going to be sitting at the right hand of power, here it said. And the right hand is always associated with power. You know, when Scripture describes the Exodus, God does it with his outstretched arm. It's always his arm that does it. That's his power. So at the right hand of power, the Son of Man is going to be sitting there. So it's reminiscent then of Daniel and Ezekiel, the Son of Man sitting with the Father and the throne, you know, riding on the clouds of heaven. Again, it's imagery from Ezekiel. So Jesus does not respond to the questions. He said, Yeah, I testify and I agree 100% that you asked me that question. Yes, you asked me. That's all he says. But then he teaches, the Son of Man is going to come. And when God comes in Ezekiel, it's to the captives after the destruction of Jerusalem. So, I didn't say anything about the destruction of the temple, but, you know, since you know your Bible, I'm just going to remind you that God talked about the destruction of the temple. I don't have to say anything. So, you know your scripture that there's destruction coming. If you don't know your scripture, I can't help you. And remember, as Rich invokes Ezekiel, remember that we're talking about literature, because how can the right hand of power come upon the clouds? How can anyone sit in a cloud? How is that possible? It's presenting something to you that can only be imagined in writing through literature. It's something otherworldly. It's something fantastical. It's something that, from a human perspective, is distorted and undoable in order to challenge you with the otherworldliness of the coming kingdom. But it's literature. So someone hearing this who deals on a daily basis with the very real reality of the Roman Empire and the very real reality of the conspiracy of a powerful religious institution that dominates their life in late antiquity in Palestine, is not going to find it a simple matter to take hope in the story of an invisible God who will come in power with his executed son sitting at his right hand, 
whose title is Son of Man, Ordinary Guy, seated in power, riding upon the clouds, you really have to hear it and understand that Scripture is inviting you to face death, to really stare death in the face. And by death, I don't just mean dying. I mean to stare power and tyranny and ugliness, human ugliness in the face, and to take courage without any guarantees. It sounds beautiful, but when you are staring down death in the face the way Jesus is here, would you take courage on the hope that an invisible God would come riding upon the clouds? That's the real question, friends. But that's how literature works. And ultimately, that is exactly how the scriptural writers challenged the Hellenistic world, and that is how they challenged and entered into the Roman Empire. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.